Welcome to Pilgrim Processing on Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green and I'm your host. Today we're looking at it's Monday, March the 15th, 2021. We're still in Jeremiah, we're still in uh, Romans, and we're still in the Gospel of John. And I love all of those for different reasons. They all have different things to offer to us and they all have different things to say to us. It's going to sound a little strange at the very beginning of the Jeremiah lesson because the people are going to say, we don't have any idea what God's upset with us about. And it sounds like it could be you just in denial or you think God doesn't pay attention, but I think we're capable of similar kinds of things. So let's listen first to the words of the psalm, and we'll pray it as a prayer. And this is from Psalm 89, and it's verses 15 through 18. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted, for your shield belongs to the our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. So in this Jeremiah lesson, what we've got is Jeremiah continuing the complaint against the people that God's making against them. And he says, When you tell them all these things, they're going to say this to you, Jeremiah. Why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What's our iniquity? What is the sin we've committed against the Lord our God? And then you're going to say to him, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, you've gone after other gods and you've served those other gods and worshiped them and you've forsaken me and you've not kept my law. And Behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. It, it sounds ridiculous that they could make such a claim, having built altars in the high places, having uh, provided sacrifices and worship to other gods. It seems ridiculous that the people could actually kind of make a plea of innocence there, but I think we're all capable of doing that same thing. And, and it's largely because we move by degrees away from him and into sin. We don't just jump typically from one into the other. It's remarkable and dramatic sometimes when people do, but it's not normal. It's not the normal path away from God. And so what happens is one generation makes this compromise and then another generation makes a further compromise. And sooner or later, what you've got is people who have no earthly idea who they are, honestly don't know the Word of God, or they've gotten so far from any kind of orthodox interpretation of the Word of God that they no longer can even hear it when they come to understand that, wait a minute, this is what people have believed forever and ever that the Word of God says. What you're espousing now, while it may be familiar to you, is not normal. It's not true. It's accommodations that have been made to the interpretation of the Word of God to make it palatable to, the, to each generation. And then suddenly you've built on a foundation that's other than true. And now you're so far away that you don't even know that you've fallen deeply, deeply into sin. It's the reason that we're all called to know the Word of God for ourselves. We're not called to rely on teachers and to rely on other people. We're called to rely on the Holy Spirit within us, and we should have our, our own time when we're in the Scriptures. You shouldn't just rely on me, frankly, to sit here and, and talk about Scripture and, and trust with 100% truth that, or with 100% trust that I'm right on all these things. I'm perfectly capable of being wrong and getting away from plumb 
in interpretation of Scripture. I try my best not to be. I certainly don't try and break new ground and move things in a different direction. I try and swim in the same currents that those before me have. And so I, I try to be careful about that. But I can certainly be wrong about something. And so the Lord says, because you've done all these things, I'm going to hurl you out of the land. And it's going to be gone. You're going to be gone from the land. You're going to be all over the place. You're going to be scattered in, into a dispersion. But mostly you're going to go to the north. He says that, that the days are coming, however, when no longer is what's remembered the days when I brought the people out of Egypt. No, what's going to ultimately be remembered by the next generations is that I brought my people from the lands of their captivities to which God sent them. Not the land they had chosen for themselves, which became a land of captivity, but the land of captivity to where the Lord sent them because of their sins. And it becomes really graphic. I'm sending many fishers, declares the Lord, and they'll catch them. And afterwards, I'll send many hunters, and they'll hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes." You know, when, when things go on a certain way for a long enough period of time, we become accustomed to those things, and we forget what that sin looks like and how abominable it is to the Lord. So again, we've got to constantly be recovering truth for ourselves. And we owe it to ourselves, but we owe it to those who are the next generation as well. We always owe it to God to revive truth and to make sure that we're constantly bringing truth to bear in things. And, and we're allowed, and in fact commanded, to question those that we have as teachers over us. We're, we're commanded to hold them accountable for their teaching. And it's important that we do that. But it's important we know the Word of God for ourselves, and we know how the Word of God is to be interpreted and how it's to be read. And like I said, we rely on the Holy Spirit for that in us, but we also rely on the church. And the church has an important role to play. The, the church, historic church, I mean, has an important role to play in that, that we want to be swimming with those. We don't want to come up to the conclusion and say, well, for the last 2,000 years, the church has gotten all these things wrong, completely wrong, until today. And now we've uncovered the true interpretation of these words. And we know that it's radically different from what's come before us, but we believe God's leading us into a new truth, a different truth from what the people before us have believed. That is not an interpretive key. That is not a way we should be going in our lives. Jesus is the interpretive key for all things. And who Jesus is matters too. He's not just some incredible prophet. He's not some avatar who came and had a special God knowledge. He is the incarnate Son of God. And in that way, we can trust every single thing he says. We can trust all of his teachings. But it's important that we know exactly who he is. And that's part of the message of the book of John. Who is this man? They've got to come to belief. As I've told you, belief is a big thing in the book of John. But, but you have to believe the right things. So you can believe certain things about Jesus, and those would be true, but they're not the truth. You could believe that he's a great teacher, and that's true. But it's not the truth of who he is, and it matters. 
that you don't stop at he's a great teacher or he's a miracle worker or he's a this or he's a that. No, the creeds define what the church has always said we need to believe about Jesus and we need to continue to believe those things about him if we're to continue in faith and if we are to persevere to the end. These things truly are important in spite of the fact that too often today we're told, oh, I'm a red-letter Christian or I'm a this or I'm a that. No, if you're not following Jesus 100%, then, then you're not a Christian at all. And if you, if you think the red letters say something different from the rest of Scripture and you're only red letters, well, I'm not sure how you do that, to be perfectly honest with you, because all the red letters, the stuff that Jesus said, has to be interpreted. It's not as straightforward always because some of the things that he taught were parables. And a parable begs interpretation. You can't take a parable straight up. Some of the things that he said were metaphors. So we need to be careful about this whole interpretation thing. And we need to be careful to make sure that we begin and end with who is Jesus. And that's part of the lesson today in John 6. Remember we moved forward and I told you we were going to come back to John 6. Well, the lectionary today starts with John 6, the first 15 verses. And they're out teaching and they're in kind of a desolate place, although we're told there's much grass there, which always baffles me why it says that specifically, why John felt it necessary to tell us that there was much grass in that place. But Jesus takes goes up with his disciples and with those who are following them, and he sits down there. And when he sits down, he's teaching the people. And, and we're again, we're close to the Passover. And Jesus looks up and he, he sees this large crowd coming to him as they're there. And he looks at Philip, one of the disciples, and says, Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed this crowd? And Philip's response is essentially, what do you mean where are we going to get bread? We don't have enough money to feed them one way or another. Because he says 100 denarii, you know, 100 de 200 denarii, sorry, 200 days wages wouldn't begin to give these people enough to eat, even just a little morsel. And then <clears throat> Andrew, this, this is another one that where you look at it and you think, why did he even say this? What he says is there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and a couple of fish, but what are they for so many? All right. I'm not sure why he felt the need to bring that up, but Jesus says that's good enough, right? He says, have everybody sit down, and it says there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So so the question is, I guess, are, is there 5,000 people there, or is that just the, the count of the men? And so Jesus then takes the loaves and the fish, and he blesses those. He prays over them and blesses them, and then he distributes them to those who were seated, and then what happens is when they had eaten their fill, he tells the disciples, go and gather up what's left and so that nothing may be lost or wasted. And so what happens is they go out and they each have a basket, right? And they come back with 12 baskets filled with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And so the people then see this and they say, this is indeed the prophet who's to come into the world. And again, that, that word, that language of the prophet goes back to Leviticus. And when um, Moses promised that a prophet like him would be raised up from among the people and they were to listen to him. And so he's done something kind of like Moses did, right? He fed them. He provided them food in a place where there was no food. And so they say, this is the prophet who's to come into the world. And Jesus' reaction to that is he perceives that they want now to come and they want to take him by force to make him king. And he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
And so what he's seen here is, is that they still don't know exactly who he is. They believe him to be the Messiah, but, but the Messiah that they want and the Messiah that they believe in, the one who would be king. And they still, however, want to take him by force and make him king. What does that tell you? That tells you that he's not in control. They are. They're going to get what they want, and they're going to have what they want. They're going to make something happen. The biggest danger we can uh, face in our own lives, I believe we face this constantly, is, is that we are constantly trying to make something happen. We think it's incumbent upon us to take things by force and make them happen when really what we should be doing is waiting and we should be trusting God. So the final lesson today is from Romans 7, and it's uh, verses 1 to 12. And, and Paul, again, he is, he is still continuing to talk about the nature of the Christian life, and he's talking about what, ha what, is, what does the law have to do with the Christian, and how does the Christian relate to the law. And he says the problem is, is, is that we were under law while we were dead in sin. He said, but the thing is, I didn't even know I was a sinner until I knew about the law. And as soon as I knew about the law, then I realized that I was a sinner. And then he particularly goes to covetousness. I didn't know what it was to covet until I read Don't Covet. And he said, then that sin working in me, that nature in me, began to produce all kinds of covetousness. And what's wrong with covetousness? Well, there's two things. One is it says you're not satisfied with what God's given you. So you want what somebody else has. And then the second problem with covetousness is it, it produces a desire for it such that it can't be fulfilled unless you have that thing. So now you're discontented to start with, and then it might produce something else as well, just like it did with David with Bathsheba. He saw Bathsheba. He coveted Bathsheba. She didn't belong to him. She belonged to his neighbor, and he decided that he had to have her one way or another, and he determined that he would. And look what all it cost him. It cost Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, his life. David, it cost him dearly. It cost him a son, and it cost him peace, I believe, in his kingdom because of what he did. His sin always was, was there. The people always knew what he had done, but that covetousness, if we give way to it, then, like I said, it begins with discontent over what the Lord has given you, your lot in life. And it's the same in some ways with honoring your mother and father. It's the appreciation for what God's given you, the parents that he's given you, good and bad. We're still to continue to honor them. And so here, Paul says this covetousness comes in, and now I want everything. And so sin doesn't just become alive. It blooms and blossoms and becomes this great thing that takes a great, in, in a huge way, I mean, takes over my life. And then he says, this is really interesting. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And Paul really is speaking of a death here. He's not speaking really metaphorically so much as he's speaking of a death to sin, this internal death, and you're taken over by the Holy Spirit, and we're to live a different way. He says, for while we're living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. 
it's an important thing for us to realize that, that we have been truly born again and we were made for a different kind of life. And we're supposed to actively, with the work of the Holy Spirit within us and the cooperation of the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to cooperate with that whole notion of putting to death those desires and those sinful passions in our lives. I'm not saying that I'm particularly good at it, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm challenged when I read these kinds of passages because what it does is it calls me to a place where I realize that I'm making a lot less effort than I should be. The Christian life is not effortless, even though we're led by the Spirit. It requires us to cooperate, to put to death those sinful passions, to say no. And then he goes on to say, the very commandment that promises, because he's arguing that the law is not a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And when he says that it deceived him, that's Genesis language because that's exactly what the serpent did, according to Eve, right? The serpent deceived her and caused her to sin. And Paul goes on to finish with, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so what we have to do is come to the right understanding of the Word of God, the Word of God written and the Word of God lived in Jesus Christ. And when we do, then we'll begin to think and to live the way that He's called us and created us to think and to live.